0: Heavenly Father, again we just give this day to you? We thank you for this time we can be in your presence, that we can be in your word, Lord. And I just ask that uh, that you would just allow us to, to capture a glimpse of you, just, just to uh, draw us into your heart further, Lord, uh, that we would be um, restored, that we'd be rejuvenated, that we'd be encouraged this morning uh, just by your goodness and by your promises and your faithfulness, Lord. And uh, we thank you for your word that you have given us, that we may know you more. And uh, I just want to lift up this community and the, all the surrounding churches, Lord. I just, I just pray for faithfulness among the believers, Father, that we would just uh, all be salt and light in our community and examples to the world around us of your faithfulness, Lord, and your greatness and your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys may be seated. The kids can run off to Kid City. Wow. Kids are tired of me, I guess. <laughs> we only had a couple kids. They're mine. <laughs> Was that Daniel crying during uh, worship? Probably because I wasn't doing baby shark. <laughs> he, uh, we went to, uh, oh, it, what's the winery called? Seasons of the North. You can tell I go there a lot. Uh, but they had a band playing, and Daniel walked up to them during their time in between and started doing the baby shark motions. Had a request <laughs> for the band. Um, I don't think they knew that one, though. <laughs> so that's his song uh, right now. Um, but I just want to welcome you guys here. Um, kind of got a smaller group today, but that's okay. I uh, enjoy the. The fellowship and the community feel to it as well. Uh, We're in the book of Joel, and uh, this is our uh, third week now, we'll probably go four weeks total. And uh The book of Joel so far has shown us uh, a time in the nation of Israel uh, where the people had fallen into a spiritual slumber, as as it were. Uh, They had turned from God and they instead chose to worship false gods. And so in order to wake them from their proverbial slumber, God calls for a plague of locusts to ravage the land. And essentially it wipes out everything, all their crops. Um, It even tells us that it's to the point where even the bark has been stripped off the trees tells us that the cattle and the flocks uh, struggle to find any food or water. And so, uh, it's this time though, it's followed by God who speaks directly to his people. In Joel chapter 2 verse 12, he says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments." So in his this request for a rent heart, God is speaking, or he's seeking, a true change of heart among his people. So he's, he's seeking something more than just the appearance of change and repenting. He wants the real thing. And so he's requesting that they rend their hearts and not their garments. And if you're unfamiliar with that terminology, uh, in the Old Testament, oftentimes uh, in ancient Israel, they'd rend their garments, they'd tear them as an outward sign of an inward emotion, typically anger or uh, despair, mourning, something like that, a negative emotion to Kind of show outwardly what they were feeling, but God is not asking for that. He wants a true change of heart. He wants a rending of the heart, as it were. Now, immediately following the words of God, Joel follows with an exhortation to the entire nation. He says, "Return to the Lord." Now, why why would he ask them to return to the Lord? For one, it's a good idea (laughs) in the midst of uh, a great distress and calamity, Um, but He's explaining it's because of who God is. And he explains them as gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And as we're going to see this morning, he is a God who relents over disaster. And interestingly, it's actually the same exact description that the prophet Jonah gave of God as well. Now God's desire is, is never to bring about difficult circumstances like we see with the nation of Israel. He's not a God who's rubbing his hands together looking forward to bringing on destruction uh, because his, his, his desire in fact is for each of us but sometimes it does take the disaster to stir us from our slumber and draw us back to him or to him initially the first time. But what we will see this morning is God is also very quick to relent and so gracious in his restoration. And so I'll give you a moment to turn to Joel chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 15. And I just want to open up in prayer before we uh, dive into God's word this morning. Dearly Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray that you would reveal yourself in your word. Uh, that you would uh, just, uh, just prepare our hearts and minds for the message today. And that we would be prepared to rend hearts if needed this morning, Lord. And we, just, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word together. And uh, we, just, uh, we just give this morning to you. May you be glorified in it. In your name we pray. Amen. So Joel chapter 2 beginning in verse 15. says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the prophets, where is their God? So once more, if you were here last week, it began with a sounding of the trumpet, and if you're not here with us last week, the trumpet was used uh, in ancient cultures and in, in ancient Israel, especially uh, for several different circumstances. They had different calls for everything, uh, different sounds to it. And uh, for this instance, the trumpet is used to call for a nationwide fast and prayer of repentance. Now, it's interesting to note that this was really a very special, uh, in particular, fast that is appointed to the nation. Uh, the only obligatory fast occurred on the Day of Atonement for the Israelites, and so to call for a nationwide fast was rather unusual in its own regard. Now, speaking of fasting, uh, it is seen throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and many of God's servants fasted and prayed And the purpose behind the fast is to deny oneself the appetites of the flesh in order to focus one's attention upon the Lord. So, typically, humanity is attracted... And in bondage to our flesh's appetites. And in this, in this regard, they're speaking of a food fast, uh, which is the most common type. But as you see in our cultures today, there's fasts for many things, including screen time, um, reading outside of the Bible, any of those things um, that, that typically are something that may distract us from drawing closer to the Lord. And so we decide to put a fast on certain things in order to focus that time upon the Lord. Now it's also important to understand that the purpose of a fast is not in order to make a deal with God, right? We don't put the fast and say, hey God, just so you know, I fasted today and uh, so uh, I, I put my into the bargain. You know, I, I could use some help on this end. I, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, that's not how the fast works. We're not here to make a deal with God. Fasting doesn't change God. In fact, it changes us. Now also, if you do fast, it is important to look at Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says in verse 16 that when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have re- received their reward. So in other words, don't make it known publicly that you're fasting. You know, don't, don't scrunch up your face, look like you're really having a bad day So, what's going on? Oh, I'm fasting today. You know, and, you know, why are you fasting? Because I love God, you know, and it's just, it's what I have to do. You know, I have to fast. He's calling me to fast today. And making it known, as the Pharisees would have made it known, uh, he calls us to do it in private. It's between us and God. Not the recognition of man, but in a desire to draw closer to the Lord. And so there's a nationwide fast that's called by the prophet Joel to the nation of Israel. And then Joel gives the nation a prayer that they need to give. And in the prayer, Joel understands that what they're asking for, in essence, is not anything they they deserve by any means. He's asking for grace and relenting on God's behalf. Now, throughout the prayer, there's two things that are focused on. And number one, first and foremost, is a cry for mercy, asking God to act compassionately, for his people. Again, this is because they have not earned. Uh, they have broken their covenant with God. And so what they're seeking for is essentially grace and mercy is the only way that they're going to get out of the destruction that they're facing. Number two is a request for God's people not to become a thing of mockery among the Gentiles. Right? In, the, in this prayer, the nation of Israel cries out, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Now, a byword is a public example. It's an object lesson for neighboring nations or people. So by seeing their destruction or their demise or their discipline, they become a byword to the other uh, countries around them or other nations. And so the two things that the nation of Israel does, they, they fast and they pray are in fact forms of worship. Um, Typically we tend to think of worship as strictly uh, singing songs or hymns um, or spiritual songs of that matter. Uh, But we can worship in many ways, including uh, reading through the word, uh, spending time in God's presence, and in this case praying and fasting. As long as our hearts are right before the Lord, any of these things can be forms of worship. And and we have to remember, too, that they could not give their offerings simply for a lack of resources. It tells us that they were completely out of uh, wine and and stocks in the uh, storehouses, and everything was empty. They had nothing to give as a sacrifice to the Lord. And so they could still worship, though, through sincere prayers and through fasting. And I say sincere because uh, we will see God's response next, continuing in verse 18. It says then the lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people the lord answered and said to his people behold i'm sending to you grain wine and oil and you will be satisfied and i will no more make you a reproach among the nations so first off we see two initial responses from god we see jealousy for his land and pity for his people. Now, this is a wonderful thing for us to understand this morning. Uh, as Alan Harmon explains, he says, The first verb, jealousy, points to an attitude that finds its outward expression in the manner indicated by the second verb, which is pity. And what is so encouraging in this is that the nation, even with its prolonged disobedience, had not been cast off by the Lord. That these people were still, in fact, God's people, even in light of their disobedience. For those who have been living in sin, choosing the world over the Father, it's encouraging to know that God's desire is still for you in the midst of that. His jealousy is shown in his pity for his people. And the same thought is repeatedly expressed by other prophets as well. And if you see a recurring lesson in scripture, you know it's really important to understand. God desires to restore far more than bring about suffering. In the case of the suffering brought about an awakening among his people and brought them back to the Lord. What we'll see is his response is far greater than just a relenting as well. And I also want to make clear that this does not give us the freedom to live in sin. Right? Just because God relents when we repent, I'd argue that with that kind of attitude, true repentance is simply not possible. We say, well, you know, I'll just continue to do this because God's already died on the cross, he's forgiven me of my sins, and I'll just, I'll just ask for forgiveness. That kind of heart is not a, a repentant heart. So I would argue that you're not even seeking true repentance. So with that attitude, there's no mourning of your sin or a true rending of the heart, as it were. Now, continuing in verse 20, it says, I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him to a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Now the word northerner only occurs once in the entire Old Testament, which is right here in the book of Joel. And many writers have suggested that it refers to an army of men coming from the north. However, with that said, if the references to the locust earlier in the book of Joel are taken literally, then the term most likely relates to that plague as well. There are well-documented instances of locusts coming from the north that support the continuing interpretation of an insect plague and not an actual army of men. God who in his sovereignty brought the locusts we also see is the one who removed them. From the land, and it says that they'll be driven away from the eastern and western seas, which is the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, respectively. And of course, with that amount of dead locusts all over the land, it's going to emit a powerful stench. <laughs> um, and so, what I find most interesting, though, in the following two verses, is that they each begin with the same standardized expression of fear not. Now fear we must remember is not from the Lord. Fear and anxiety are struggles that man has faced since the fall is recorded in Genesis chapter 3. If you remember Adam and Eve's response to their sin, it tells us that they were afraid and so they hid themselves from the Lord. We see men like Moses and Isaac, Nehemiah, Joshua, they all struggled with fear. David struggles with fear. Samuel also struggles with fear. This great cloud of witnesses, as it were, all had to overcome these things in some form or another. And it's no different for us today. And so this exhortation, fear not, I, I could even argue may be even more prevalent in our day and age today. Our culture is saturated with fears and anxiety, general anxiety disorders that just continue, the the numbers continue to rise to the likes that we have never seen before. And so if that's you this morning, if, if, if fear, anxiety, worry, those kinds of things are something you struggle with, it's very important to know in the midst of that that you're not alone. And in a sense that that there are many others who struggle with fear and anxiety every day, but in a greater sense, you are not alone because God is with you. Now I know in your mind you probably think that's just a cliche, churchy answer, and it is a cliche and churchy answer, but it's also true. Scripture is filled with encouragement in why we shouldn't fear or worry. One of my favorite verses comes in the book of Isaiah, chapter 41, verse 10. God says, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In the New Testament, in the book of Philippians, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I understand in the moment, if you're struggling through fear, anxiety, and worry, I know in the moment it's much easier said than done to just say, don't worry about it, God's in control. But we have to learn to constantly, consistently, day by day, lay our fears and our worries and our anxieties upon the Lord. I know one of my biggest issues in regards to fear and anxiety is that I try to carry the load myself, right? All the things, all the worries, the stresses of life, uh, I feel them upon my shoulders, and rather than giving them to God, I say, you know, I can probably get through this. I can do it myself on my own accord, on my own strength, on my own power and own ability. But they just continue to weigh me down. And so in those moments when I come into his presence, when I'm in prayer, when I'm in worship or fellowship with the, with the Lord, we're reminded of that peace of God in Philippians chapter 4 that surpasses the understanding. And when that comes upon us, it's, it's something that's truly miraculous. It's truly remarkable to have a, a peace that surpasses any human understanding, a, a peace that comes upon us only by the work of the Lord. I also find the words of Jesus in the book of John to be incredibly encouraging with this. In John 14, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So this is not a peace that is found in this world. It's not a peace that's found in worldly comfort, comforts. Excuse me. Certainly we can find peace in, in certain things. You know, We can find financial peace for a period of time in our life or other peace that the world may offer, but this peace that Jesus is speaking of is only found in Christ. John MacArthur explains it this way. He says, The word peace reflects the Hebrew word shalom, which became a greeting of Jesus to his disciples after the resurrection. At the individual level, this peace, unknown to the unsaved, secures composure in difficult trouble, dissolves fear, as we talked about in Philippians 4, and rules in the heart of God's people to maintain harmony. The greatest reality of this peace will be in the messianic kingdom. So this peace will be fully revealed to us, he's explaining, uh, in the eternal messianic kingdom when we spend eternity with God. But there's still a peace there that he explains that secures composure in difficult trouble, dissolves fear, and rules in the hearts of God's people to maintain harmony. It's something that the, the world cannot give us. And so there's encouragement today that we do not have to live in fear and worry or in anxiety. And I understand fully, guys, the the stresses that the the world can bring, that life can bring. But we must remember, in, in light of everything, that God is in control. So, so we look at why the Israelites are told to fear not. And, and it, Joel goes on to explain that God has brought the pastures back. The, the trees are bearing fruit. The threshing floors are full of grain. The vats are now overflowing once more with wine and oil. And so there's provision that God brought in the midst of the plague and famine. And all this comes, it explains, from a nourishing rain. Joel mentions a former and a latter rain. And in this area of the world, uh, if you've ever been over to the Middle East area, it doesn't really rain a whole lot. (laughs) Especially not in comparison to up here where it seems like it's been raining every day this week. Uh, It doesn't do that very often in Israel. So typically the former rain would come in the autumn and the latter rain would come in the springtime. And here it tells us that God brought both of these rains within a month to reestablish the their crops and their provisions. This is truly a miracle in light of these people. This is not something they would see perhaps maybe once in their lifetime right here to see both of the rains come within the same month. Now, I also love. Um, I spent a couple weeks in Israel a few years back, and I just love the outlook that the Israelis have on rain. I'm sure that the Israelites back then also had a similar outlook. Um, but when we were there, believe it or not, it actually snowed <laughs> when I was in Israel, and it was probably six to eight inches. It wasn't just like a light snowfall and then it melted. It actually stuck on the uh, outside porches and stuff. And uh, of course, they're not prepared for it. All they have are squeegees. They're trying to move the snow around with squeegees, and then I'm kind of laughing from Northern Michigan. Um, but the the joy that they had in light of that—they said they haven't had a rain or a snow in ten years. They said they have never. Stayed, some of these people have never even seen snow. The kids—they were just—they were. Just, you should see them. there driving these big, uh, like Humvees, down the road and going through the snow and just trying to do drifts and all sorts of stuff. Um, it was—it was remarkable. But I remember asking one of the locals, you know, I just said, "You guys have a kind of a different outlook on this. I know it's uncommon, but you know, what's why do you guys have such a, a positive outlook on on?" Precipitation, I guess you could say. Um, because, you know, for those who don't know, I lived in Florida for a few years and I learned to really hate rain <laughs> when I lived there. Every summer, every day for one hour it would rain and then after it would stop, you'd have about 700% humidity. Um, like you're walking through a sauna. I was like, this is terrible. Um, but, uh, so I learned to t- really take for granted uh, rain. But uh, in the culture of Israel, uh, they actually pray for rain on their wedding day. Uh, which is quite different from our culture. If you've ever been to an outside wedding, everyone's like, I hope it doesn't rain. I don't know what the weather's like. I hope it doesn't rain. But there, they're actually praying that it would rain on their wedding day because this is a sign uh, that rain is a life-giving, sustaining element. And so to have rain on your wedding day means that your marriage will be full of life and healthy. Essentially, it's like a a blessing of God on their marriage. So it was a miracle for the Israelites here that brought life, it brought resources, and it brought joy back into the lives of the people. I remember something similar. Before I lived in Florida, I lived in Southern California, which are quite opposite when it comes to precipitation. Uh, But something similar happened in 1991. Um, I was pretty young, so I don't actually remember it, but I remember the term growing up, Miracle March, in Southern California being talked about. Now in March of 91, Southern California was facing one of its worst droughts on record. Lake Tahoe, it tells us, was at its lowest levels ever recorded, which in fact really hurt the economy of the people who lived in that area. They, re- they relied on um, people visiting and spending time at Lake Tahoe, and so when the waters were that low, people were not coming. So in February of 91, Lake Tahoe Ski Shop, it tells us, um, their retail sales had dropped 33 percent, lodging had fallen 40 percent, and unemployment was down 145 percent. Marin County was requiring residents to use less than 50 gallons of water per person per day or face stiff penalties. Can you imagine that up here <laughs> in the in the you know the Great Lakes and all these Great bodies of water surrounding us, and people saying, "You know, you can only use 50 gallons of water per day." <laughs> it's a uh, it's a much different uh, way of life out there, certainly. But uh, um, and I remember growing up, there was we had bans on watering our lawns several times in the summer. Uh, we just couldn't do it; you we weren't allowed. Um, but the thing, so things were looking really ugly in '91, and the drought was costing California about a billion dollars in losses. And then on March 1st, in 1991, it started snowing and it didn't stop until 50 inches of snow had fallen on Lake Tahoe. So skiers, it tells us, and farmers and citizens were rejoicing. 50 inches is a lot. (laughs) I mean, even for the UP, in one downfall, that's a lot of snow. Um, But it was only the beginning, it tells us. During the month of March, 240 inches of snow, or 20 feet, fell on the Sugar Bowl Ski Resort. In some areas of California, received 250% of average March precipitation. The Sugar Bowl averages 500 inches of snow annually, and Miracle March brought approximately half of its annual snowfall. And it says it saved the 91 ski season. Lake Tahoe's snowpack went from 70, 17% of its, national, or of its average to 73% in just 29 days. And so similarly, it's the double portion of rain in a single month for Israel that in essence was Israel's miracle march, so to speak. It was something that could only be attested to the gracious and merciful hand of God. And so we can continue, we're going to continue right here in Joel chapter 2, verse 25. It's one of my favorite verses, perhaps my favorite verse in all of Joel. He says, this is God speaking, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. So everything that Israel has lost up to this point the crops, it tells us the food, the wine, all these things, it's, it's returned to them, it tells us prior to this verse. But perhaps the greatest gift of all is found here in, in verse 25. It says that God promises to restore the years that the plague had taken. So if the rains and the harvest are not enough of a reminder, God promises a restoration of the years they lost in the struggle of the plague and famine. Isn't that remarkable? A promise of time returned back to you that was lost in the, in the moment of, of the famine. Uh, recently, I was working at Starbucks, and uh, they decided, you know, it was just random thing, but they had a leak in one of their machines, and water got into my laptop while I was working, and it just froze, and then it just went black. I was like, well, this isn't good. You know, I'm, I, I'm an online student, <laughs> and I do most of my work on my laptop. Uh, this is, i got to get this figured out. And, uh, you know, Starbucks, I'm not, I'm not here to, uh, you know, you know, sell them. I'm not a uh, spokesman for Starbucks, but they did a very good job in their customer service as far as making sure everything was um, fixed. But it did take several weeks. I had to go, you know, I just take a day off and travel down to Traverse City to the closest MacBook store and um, get it sent in. And they had to ship it back to my house, which I got about a week later. So all these things, um, but in in short they they refunded me my money um and I got everything on my computer is back and in working order but I lost that time um that I was spending kind of waiting, I actually lugged our iMac to my house on occasion to work from home, and <laughs> so I, i'm pretty sure someone drove by while I was carrying that big MacBook right in the back there you know in my hand like, what is he doing you know <laughs> it 's okay i 'm the pastor I work here it's <laughs> you know see him calling the cops or something, but uh, it all worked out, but I did not get my time back, and i 'm not complaining about that i 'm just showing you that it 's incredible that God has promised a restoration of their years as well. And it's, this verse is such a, a clear indication of God's true character. And if you doubt it this morning, God is so loving. And his desire is truly for us. And Christianity is exclusive in its belief that we cannot earn our salvation. There's nothing on our own accord that we can do to obtain salvation. There's no merit that we can earn. It's unattainable by human feats and by human works. And it's only attainable by the sacrifice of God's Son on the cross. And I love in Romans, it tells us, when did, when did Jesus die for us? You're like, 2,000 years ago. No, it, not a time frame. It tells us that he died for us while we were dead in our sins. Right? There was nothing that you said, okay, you know, I see your heart's turning back to me. I see you being faithful to God. I'm going to die for you and, and make a sacrifice. It says that we will, while we were dead in our sins, that he died for us. Well certainly God didn't have to do anything in this regard. In the book of Joel, Israel had turned its back on God after making a covenant with him. Now a covenant is a serious deal. If anyone has made a covenant, if in your marriage you've made a covenant or a vow, as it were, it's a very big thing. It's something that they made directly to God and with God, saying we will obey your statutes and be faithful to you, and they failed to do that. And so the repercussions were earned, and they were deserved, and in fact, they were promised by God. So if God didn't send these, uh, this devastation, he would not be the faithful God that we see in the Bible. But there's an incredible thing about God, is that he desires to relent. And it's because he loves us. But he does so much more in this story than just relent, doesn't he? It's not just, okay, I see your hearts have rended and they're, it rents and they're turned back to me. I'm going to send the, the locust away. Well, no, what he does is he sends them away. He kills the locust. He brings forth a double portion of rain to reestablish everything and then promises to restore the time that they had lost as well. So he gives in abundance. And I hope that you see that in your own life this morning. I know that there's, there's difficulties, there's stresses, there's anxiety and fears in life, but to To look past that, oftentimes we can get so stuck on looking on those things and fail to see the abundance that God has given in our own lives. He gives above and beyond anything that these people could have imagined. And so if you ever doubt God's love, this verse right here in Joel chapter two is an incredible reminder of just how truly deep his love is. He restores everything that was lost in the plague and the famine, including the years. It's truly amazing. Now lastly, I want to key in on one more thing this morning in verses 28 and 29. It says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the spirits and upon the handmaids in those days I will pour out my Spirit. So lastly this morning, I'd like to focus here on the outpouring of of the Spirit. Now the term afterwards found in verse twenty eight speaks of a time as as the Apostle Peter calls it, in the last days. So this is this meanings a future fulfillment of this passage. The Holy Spirit would come into God's elect at a particular time. Or, excuse me, I'm sorry. The, the, the Holy Spirit, if you look through the, the Old Testament, you would see it recorded several times that the Holy Spirit would come upon an individual and he would work through an individual, whether it be a prophet or a priest or occasionally he'd work through the kings. But it, never, it was never over an entire group of people as prophesied here in the book of Joel. We never saw an outpouring of God's Spirit over an entire group of people. And so what we see here is the prophecy of Pentecost. In fact, you see Peter actually refer back to the book of Joel on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came upon the believers in the upper room. It's also the same Spirit that is promised by Jesus before he ascended in Acts chapter 1, where he says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then it tells us in the very next chapter in Acts chapter 2 that they were all together, all the believers, in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now very interesting to note here that the Hebrew word for spirit is found in the book of Joel can also mean Wind. Now, how is the Holy Spirit described in Acts chapter two, "A mighty rushing wind." So this promise continues to show God giving far beyond what could have ever been hoped for. Right? This, again, this is a people that have turned their back on God, who see His judgment poured out over them, only to have it removed as they repent and store back, uh, repent and, and turn back, but then we see that God gives them everything they lost, that so He restores everything back to them. the the crops, the food, the harvest, but including the time and the years that they had lost. And now it tells us he is promising an outpouring of his spirit over his people. Now I find this to be one more thing that we can be encouraged by this morning. See, God has given us everything we need to live in this world. As Jesus ascended to heaven, he said, I'm going to leave a helper fit for you. You know, I'm going to leave a helper for you on this earth, that you can work and live in this earth and overcome the world. So God has given us everything we need to live in this world and the fears and anxieties that attack us in unrelenting ways, guys, I want you to understand this morning, they hold no power over us. So if you're struggling with fears and anxieties and worries in your life on the day to day, understand that they hold no power over you. as we have the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome through Jesus Christ. I'm not preaching at you this morning. This is a message that I needed to hear myself. I understand that I I struggle with these things at times as well. And to be reminded that we have the Holy Spirit, that we have a God who relents, but also restores and desires our hearts to know that He is in control. And so as we close this morning, I just want to remind us of, of two major keys from the passage this morning. Number one is that God's character is revealed as one who loves us more than we could ever imagine. It's easy to be short-sighted when reading through the book of Joel and we see this passage as a God who is harsh, right? Well, why would he ever do such a thing? Why would he send a plague on his own people that he says he loves? But to look at it in that way doesn't properly tell the whole story. When we see his people fail on their end of the covenant with God and in turn proper judgment awaits them but we also see a God who relents because of his great love for his people. And number two, we also see that in that love a spirit poured out over his people that allows us to face this world without fear and knowing that victory has in fact already been won for us on the cross. This is not a promise that says we're not going to face any hardship, right? We may certainly die for our faith. You know, there's promises that we will face persecution in this world. So this is not, uh, you know, put your faith in God and everything's going to be hunky-dory, your your health and uh, life is going to be easy. That's not the case. But we can rest assured that death, physical death, now has no sting on our lives because our eternal arrangement has already been made by the power of the cross. And so while we face each day, we can be confident in knowing that we have the Holy Spirit leading, the Holy Spirit guiding, and the Holy Spirit equipping us. And we must remain faithful in his word and in his presence and continuing to cast our cares upon the Lord I think typically we can probably do one maybe two of those things really well in our own lives but I think that last one I don't think I'm alone in that struggle that we can kind of fail to cast our cares on the Lord we don't want to bother him with our, with our minor things right we don't want to bother him with these things that we can take care, on our, take care of on our own but he desires that he calls for us to do so it's so important. And, and stress and anxiety and, and fears are so real. I don't want you to feel like if that's you this morning that uh, that you're the only one going through that because you're definitely not. But also to understand that God is here for you in the midst of that. That he's, he's desiring you to cast those things upon him and take his yoke because it's easy and his burden is light. And so this morning I just, uh, I just ask that all our heads would be bowed and our eyes would be closed. Um, and uh, I, just, I just, I guess I want a show of hands. I don't, I don't do this very often, or if ever. Um, but those who are currently just struggling with any sort of fears, anxieties, or worries in their life, um, big or small. Um, I just, I just want to say a special prayer um, over those this morning that are facing, whether it be in work, or be in parenting, uh, or be just in their spiritual walk altogether. Just something um, that they're struggling with in this world. And I can admit, for one, for me, it's parenting is a big one. Um, also, schooling, things like that. Uh, just this feeling of overwhelmed, and uh, just and just not being good enough for for what God has called me to. Um, but I just want to. I just want to pray over those fears, over those anxieties, and just cast them upon the Lord, Heavenly Father. Um, you know the hearts of everyone here, Father. And you know what struggles they face, what fears they face, what anxieties and and worries, whether it be day-to-day or or bigger ones, year-to-year. Lord, you know exactly what they're struggling with, Lord. And I just ask that you would come and just give us this peace that you promise that surpasses our understanding, Lord. That we would be able to cast those cares upon you and know that you are faithful in this moment. Lord, you command us time and again in your word to fear not. And I think it's just a wonderful reminder, Lord, that you are in control, ultimately. No matter what comes our way, whether we face trials like Job or the apostles, Lord, that you are in control of every situation, that you have your hand over it. And we thank you for that, Lord. I just ask that you would stand in the gap for us, that the enemy would have no foothold in our lives and in our worries and our fears, that those would just be removed from us, just as the plague was, Lord, from the east into the west, and that we would be able to live in confidence, knowing that you are faithful, that you are good, and that your desire is for us. Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity to, to study your word and to draw closer to you as a body of believers, Lord. I just want to lift up this community, this, uh, these generations, Lord, that, that face uh, the struggles of fear and anxiety far more than in the past. Lord, I just ask that that spirit of fear, the spirit of anxiety, the spirit of worry would not be over our community, over our church, over these families, but that we'd have a spirit of peace and it could only be attested to you and your glory would be revealed to this world and this generation. And we just give this day to you. Your mighty name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, I want to close with a uh, song. You can stand if you would like. but uh, it's, uh, we've sang this last week. We've sang it quite a bit. Um, it's the song, Who You Say I Am. And it's just a great reminder of who we are in Christ Jesus, right? We, we can believe the lies of the world. They tell us who we are. But God tells us who we truly are, right, for eternity. And there's such a, there's such a hope in that. And so I wanted to close with that this morning.